This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Good to be here. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hi. We have a lot of news to get to today, including the latest from Ukraine, but we're going to start with some archaeology news today, an announcement of a discovery of the oldest Hebrew writing ever found and stunning proof of the accuracy of the Bible. For this, we'll go to Jerusalem, to Brent. Yeah, it's hard to overstate this discovery uh, and its importance. It's basically the most important biblically significant artifact, I would say, arguably, ever discovered in the history of archaeology. This is an inscription from around 3,400 years ago, so around 1400 BCE. It is an inscription that is located on on an inside of a lead tablet that was about two centimeters by two centimeters, so almost an inch by an inch in in size. And it was discovered in 2019 up on the site of Mount Ebal in the north, central northern highlands of Israel. Now, if you're familiar with the biblical story, I'll set it up that way. You basically have Joshua coming to conquer the promised land, and he takes over Jericho. He takes over Ai after the sin of Achan. And then God tells him to follow the the advice of Moses or the instruction of Moses and go up to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. This is the, the two mountains that are overlooking Shechem, the ancient city of Shechem or Shechem. And he sets up five of the tribes of ancient or six of the tribes of ancient Israel on Mount Ebal and the other six on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is the mountain that is called the Blessings Mountain, and Mount Ebal is the Cursings Mountain. They are going to recite the blessings and the cursings that are mentioned in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so on Mount Ebal also, and you can read this uh, both in in, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 29, that's where Moses tells Joshua to build an altar there, and Joshua 8 and verse 30 and 31 says that on Mount Ebal, Joshua builds an altar right after this ceremony of blessings and cursings, where half the tribes call out the blessings and half the tribes call out the cursings. So really just an absolutely dramatic display of all the congregation of Israel coming together to what some would say, renew their covenant to God after they had start taking over the promised land. Now, is this true? Is this a true event? If you're a Bible believer, you would say, of course. But there's several elements of this story that people would say would be absolutely impossible. Namely, that we don't even know that this story of Joshua's is true because the Bible was written a thousand years after this time, as people would say. So let's get back to this inscription. This is an inscription that was found inside this lead tablet on Mount Ebal in 2019 in an archaeological context, meaning that other discoveries that are inside found with this lead tablet date to the time period from 1400 BCE, so the time of Joshua's conquest, till about 1250. That's about the window we have of the other artifacts that are associated uh, with this discovery. It's also found in material that is related to an altar, a massive altar, dated to this same time period up on Mount Ebal. But what 
does it say? This is where it gets even more exciting. This is this script includes forty proto alphabetical uh, uh, letters, basically the very early precursor to ancient Hebrew. This is the earliest writing, alphabetical writing that's been discovered in the land of Israel by about two or three hundred years. So it's easily the earliest inscription. Now, what it says is this. Cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh or Jehovah, whichever way you want to kind of pronounce that, I suppose, uh, you will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. So you've got 10 mentions of the word curse in this inscription. You've got the earliest mention of the name of God here, mentioned in the land of Israel as, or, as well. You'll remember that Moses uh, meets God and God tells him, how, what name shall, well, he asks God, what shall, name shall I be called? And God tells him, this is the name that you, I'm going to be called by. And then you have 40 years or a bit longer than that. After that, Joshua coming here, and we see this name on an inscription in ancient Hebrew writing there on Mount Ebal. And it mentions the same word, the mountain of curse, 10 specific times as well uh, on this mountain. And so you've got a lot of elements of this is so important. One, it's kind of backing up. It is backing up the biblical narrative to say that Joshua did this in this location at this altar. This is where the cursed mountain was, and you've got a curse inscription there. It's also undermining 150 years of anti-Bible scholarship or, or that said that the early books of the Bible could not have been written by Moses because they didn't even know how to write back then. They couldn't write in an alphabetical script like this back then at all. And here we have a, a script from 1400 uh, BC, 40, 40 characters that can be read today based on you know, these epigraphical experts um, that shows that the Joshua in script, Joshua, this account of Joshua as related in the Bible took place, but also they had the ability to write it down. The Bible is not just oral traditions that are written down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the events that they purport to describe. They were written by eyewitnesses and they could. We now know they had the ability to write such things down as well. Yeah, that uh, the the point about this verifying the ability that Moses would have had to record these events truly is remarkable. And there's a couple of articles in the newest edition of Let the Stone Speak that explain this significance. I was I was struck not only by uh, this discovery, and this is something that uh, you you did an interview with Scott Stripling, where he was a little more circumspect and saying, you know, we're going to check into this more and. The the uh, the implications of this find were were huge, but he was just uh, just being cautious and and um, but this is the the announcement has come out and he's very confident this is what we're looking at here now. Uh, there was another article in the in that issue that was talking about some of the internal evidence within the Bible of uh, that it had to have been. Uh, written by someone who was very familiar personally with life in Egypt and not someone who was writing hundreds of years later. All of this evidence showing that the Bible is exactly what it says that it is, that those fir first five books of the Bible, the really the foundation of the entire Bible, were written by the author that uh, that uh, those who believe in the narrative that was written there accept uh, that has just been trashed by uh, biblical critics for so long. That that is a, a tremendous uh, 
support for the underpinning of the Bible as we know it. Yeah, you. It's an absolute, absolutely huge blow to again 150 years of biblical scholarship and biblical criticism. The whole Wellhausen f- theory with the five different authors for the Pentateuch at five different times and etc. That everyone's based a lot of their their information on. I mean, you can just throw out a lot of that right now based on this inscription. Um, one of the this wasn't just Doctor Doctor Scott Stripling. Um, he's an evangelical um, that's excavated at Shiloh and other places, and he's just just discovering amazing things. But some people would look at him and say, "Well, he's a religious guy, and so of course he's going to you know find things that back it up." But the epigraphist, one of them, Gershon Galil from Haifa University, here, he's the one that's studying the inscription and. He listening to him speak in the press conference yesterday, it sounded like he was the religious guy um, saying that this, you know, this proves absolutely without a doubt that these events that took place in the book of Joshua happened 100 percent and that the biblical biblical scripts could be written by uh, scribes from that very time period as well. Which, again, I mean, we talk about King David, the battle over King David and King Solomon narrative. Let's jump back 400 years 400 years before then, and we're talking about the early stories of the Bible that are getting proven uh, by this discovery. It's absolutely phenomenal. People can um, go to our latest edition of Let the Stone Speak. You can see that Armstrong Auditor- Armstrong Institute, sorry, dot org. Uh, we have a write-up about uh, that previous interview with Dr. Stripling, as well as just more about this altar of Joshua. We also have an article that's up right now on armstronginstitute.org, and this is kind Kind of the breaking news discovery. Uh, it's entitled Breaking News Ancient Hebrew Curse Tablet Discovered at Joshua's Altar on Mount Ebal. And so you could go ahead and get up to date uh, by reading that article. Yeah, it, an excellent article. I'll just read one quote from it uh, that uh, Chris Eames writes from Professor Galil. The scribe that wrote this could have written every chapter in the Bible. Now, no one can claim that the Bible was written in later periods because they were able to write it very, very early. Remarkable stuff. We'll link to that article, Breaking News, Ancient Hebrew Curse Tablet Discovered at Joshua's Altar on Mount Ebal, in the show notes, as well as Brent's interview with Scott Stripling and that article about Joshua's Altar. Thank you so much, Brent. Great to uh, hear from you on that story. Now we're going to look at the latest happenings in Russia's attack of Ukraine, For this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yeah, we've just entered the fifth week of Russia's war on Ukraine. The United Nations has now confirmed that more than 1,000 Ukrainian civilians uh, have been killed. And they say that the true number is probably several times that. So largely because of all the civilian casualties, the U.S. has now formally accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of war crimes. That's a label that's not handed out cavalierly, and it is very much deserved in this situation uh, because, you know, Russian forces are committing blatant and deliberate attacks on uh, civilians all over Ukraine. That's especially evident if you look at Putin's merciless attacks on Mariupol. Russian forces there are attacking all kinds of civilian targets, even hospitals and schools and theaters where displaced Ukrainians are known to be sheltering. Uh, Putin's men are using grad rockets there, also artillery and airstrikes. Even ambulances are being intentionally targeted. There's, there's no food or power or water there. It hasn't been for about two weeks now, so many Ukrainians are now starving. And many are now being buried in mass graves, if at all. 
because there are just too many bodies for them to be, you know, properly buried. Journalists in Mariupol are comparing it to Stalingrad, where the Nazis attacked the Russians so savagely in, in World War II. But this time around, it's the Russians who are the invading fascists. So it is uh, notable, I think, that this week in Kiev, there have been indications that Russia has been pushed into a somewhat of a defensive posture. This is, of course, the capital where Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his government are based. He has refused to flee, and his forces really seem to be concentrated largely around Kyiv. So the Ukraini Ukrainians have been able to repel most of the Russian advance there. And it could be that uh, in the days of ahead, the Russians will even end up relinquishing some of the ground that they took in the periphery of Kiev. So it may look like a little bit of a glimmer of hope there, at least in kind of a short-term view, but we cannot say the same for Mariupol and other locations in the east where Russians are uh, gaining ground. What sort of reports are we hearing about the, the tactics that the Russians are using as this drags out longer than uh, than they anticipated. One of the big ones came yesterday. That was when uh, President Zelensky confirmed that Russian forces have used phosphorus bombs in Ukraine. So phosphorus ignites upon contact with the air, and it can just terribly burn anyone in its radius, often fatally. And Zelensky said the phosphorus bombs that Russia has used have killed many Ukrainians, including an undisclosed number of children. So um, phosphorus is not considered a chemical weapon under international law, but many analysts argue that it actually should be. And it is restricted by international conventions. Uh, so, so this claim is still unverified, and we know that this whole war is really being fought on media channels almost as much as on battlefields. But if this is true, this would represent, I think, just a, a notable escalation in terms of the type of weapons that Putin may start to use more and more of. It could mean that Russia is considering more of the extreme types of weapons, especially since its progress has been slower than most would have expected. Um, this could very likely lead Putin to pull out some of those weapons that he wouldn't have other, otherwise felt compelled to use. So it is alarming, I think, to hear the news about the phosphorus bombs. And I think that should just be viewed as really an indication of how much worse things could get in this, this unconscionable war. We've talked about how uh, Vladimir Putin shows no signs of backing down and that the support from the West of the Ukrainians uh, seems really aimed at prolonging a war that is kind of working in their favor politically, America's leaders and, and elsewhere. Uh, is there anything to suggest that uh, that's changing at all? How are the Russians adapting uh, as this continues? Well, yeah, that's that's a great question. And there are reports that the Russians are learning from some early mistakes that they made in this war, and they are changing their tactics in response to that. There was uh, an article about this in Task and Purpose on Monday. Part of it says, the Russians are already adapting and by doing so are narrowing the Ukrainians' tactical edge. The one-sided culling of Russian armored columns that characterized the opening days of the war and kept YouTube subscribers around the world happy are a thing of the past. The Russians now lead their formations with electronic attack, drones, lasers, and good old-fashioned reconnaissance by fire. So, you know, the, the Russians have suffered heavy casualties. It looks like more than 15,000 Russian soldiers are dead, and that's more than died in all 10 years of the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan back in the 80s. So it's a significant number. And when you add to that the wounded 
and the uh, captured and also the deserters, the total figure might be as high as 40,000 Russians who wow. are no longer on the battlefield. So, you know, that that is a huge number when you consider that the original figure was 190,000. Um, but we have to keep in mind that it does look like the Russians may now be learning how to play to their strengths far more effectively and just adapt to the circumstances. And and I think we could also start seeing a lot more fighter jet and bomber sorties from the Russians as well. Those uh, have already just this week begun to increase quite a lot. And that's the type of attack that the Ukrainians, at least without help from Western air forces, are going to have a very difficult time defending against. So yeah, the Russians are adapting and their advances could soon be gaining, you know, quite a lot of speed. There was, uh, there's been quite a lot talked about the possibility of a, uh, a truce brokered by uh, Zelensky. Uh, Israel has offered to uh, participate in that. Is the hope of that actually following through to bring an end to uh, the combat uh, still there? Well, there, there has been quite a bit of optimism in the West about how Putin's forces do appear to have made, you know, slower progress in some of their campaigns and how they may be being pushed back around Kyiv, especially. And some have said this means Russia will want a ceasefire soon and that maybe the end is in sight for all this barbarity. But the truth is that Russia will only want to negotiate when it's very much in a position of strength and when its goals in Ukraine are realized. The, uh, the European Union's top diplomat, Joseph Burrell, talked about this yesterday. He said, right now, Russia doesn't want to sit and negotiate anything. What it wants is to occupy the ground. It wants to surround the coast to the border with Moldova and isolate Ukraine from the sea. It wants to negotiate in earnest only when it has secured a position of strength. So, you know, I think Burrell makes a good point there, but I actually think Russia's goals in Ukraine are more comprehensive than what he's saying. Putin intends to take not just Ukraine's coast, but its capital. He intends to install a pro-Russia puppet government and end any westward leanings for Ukraine. So uh, Burrell undershoots that part of it a bit, but, but he is exactly right about negotiations. Any negotiations that Russia enters into at the moment are just for show. And, and Putin will only really negotiate in earnest when he's in a position of strength and dictating all of the terms. So we, we have been talking quite a lot about this on, uh, on Trumpet Hour. Maybe you could just give a brief uh, view of why this is significant, how we're viewing this prophetically. Sure, yeah. Uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, he's been cautioning the world about Vladimir Putin's just direction, really, for close to two decades now. And that is because uh, Bible prophecy warns about an alliance of some Asian countries that will be formed in the modern day. And Mr. Flurry has pointed to Ezekiel 38 to show that this block will be headed by one Russian individual. That verse calls him the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And, and Mr. Flurry has identified Putin as that individual. Um, and in his 2017 booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flurry goes through the details of that passage, and he connects it to other passages showing just you know, just how destructive this colossal force that Putin will lead is going to be. So all of this shows, I think, just how how crucial it is for us to watch Putin as he keeps on annihilating Ukraine and really in all other elements of his tyrannical leadership. All right. Thank you very much for that, Jeremiah. We'll look now at Europe's developing response to what's happening here. It's moved toward greater military capabilities and a new security strategy spearheaded by Germany. 
For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. EU leaders came up with a new strategic compass is kind of the buzzword. They came up for it at a meeting that they held on Monday. It's an, an initiative that's been in the works since uh, America's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has given it a fresh urgency. And this event, I think, is part of a whole pattern of news events that we've seen this week that really underscores uh, that you know, Germany is moving to be at the center of a united European military. So far, one of the big events that we've been focusing on on this show is Germany's military turnaround, Germany beefing up its own military. And this week, we I think we saw more news along the lines of European military integration uh, with Germany at its heart. So uh, Handels Blatter, a German news outlet, they wrote about the strategic compass that it signals to the world that Europe is ready to rearm. Civilian power, that's history. The European Union now wants to become a military power as well. Now, if we want to get beyond buzzwords and look at actual results, one of the most significant parts of this strategic compass uh, is a plan to create a new 5,000-strong rapid reaction force. So this is designed to kind of replace the idea of EU battle groups, something that was created on paper back in 2007 but never existed in practice. So there's a lot of emphasis on having this actually exist this time. It wants to be op they want it to be operational by 2025. And Germany volunteered to be the quote to provide the military core of this new force. Uh, and the rest of Europe was very happy to go along with that to take Germany up on that offer. So right at the heart of this whole strategic compass initiative is Germany. And this new push for European uh, unified European military is really being built uh, around Germany. The initial uh, announcement that Germany made that it was going to uh, boost its military spending dramatically, uh, this was something that we drew a lot of attention to because we've talked about Germany being the, the military power and uniting the rest of Europe based on the prophecies of the Bible for a long time, and yet there's always been these hang-ups and obstacles that have prevented them from uh, making substantive change on the scale of what we're seeing now, everything that has happened since that time shows a tremendous amount of momentum, not only within Germany and the political will to see these things through, but a lot of support and cooperation from other European nations that apparently are very comfortable with Germany being the leader in these uh, endeavors. That's right, looking to Germany. And we're seeing more and more uh, evidence of that in small ways uh, or even significant ways. We've seen more troops going to the from Germany going to the Baltic states in recent weeks. Just this week, you had German and Dutch troops begin to, to arrive in Slovakia to set up a new Patriot missile defense system. So a lot of Eastern European countries, they're having Germany, uh, you know, they're looking to Germany for help. And it's not just European countries. America is right on board with this. We've talked about this before on the show, but in the last week or so, uh, I mean, from in some other ways, but in the last week or so, the uh, Amy Goodman, the United States ambassador to Germany, just had some remarkable statements. Uh, she said, if Germany does not take the leadership role in the European Union, we will all be weaker together. So you know, she's really pushing, saying, OK, not we don't just need Germany to rearm. We need Germany to be the leader. And it is really remarkable to see all this. Obviously, if you've listened to probably even just one episode of this show before, we, you know that we've been focused on uh, Germany emerging as the, as the heart of Europe, as the military heart of Europe even. 
But without that prophetic background, well, why Germany? Yes, they are the, the most populous country in Europe and a big economy, but France historically has been the bigger military power. Uh, why isn't it France this week that everyone is saying, well, France should take the lead right. or that France should form the core? And they're not. It's it's Germany. It's exactly that approach that we've been uh, signaling for a long time. But And then you know, we've mentioned countries. It's also in the German press. I thought it was really interesting that Die Welt had an article this week, how to rebuild the German military, Europe's best hope to deter Putin. Mm-hmm. You know, Europe, Germany is Europe's best hope. And, and the article was full of statements about how Germany should be the backbone of European of the European military. Uh, so it's been quite a, a, a noticeable push this week for for Europe, not for Germany, not just to militarize itself, but to be the backbone for all Europe. Where would you send people for information about why this is so significant prophetically? Well, one place to go to get a great succinct uh, summary of this is an article from our executive editor, Mr. Stephen Flurry, his trumpet brief this week, a German Frankenstein superpower. Uh, That was published on March 22nd. He goes through some of the news around this uh, and then goes back and shows you where Mr. Armstrong said this was going to happen. Uh, He goes back and uh, covers some of uh, what the Bible says about this, uh, why Mr. Armstrong forecast for so many years that this would happen. Why you can go back to some of the very earliest trumpet print editions in 1991 uh, and see Mr. Flurry talking about Germany rearming like this. So he'll take you through some of the scriptures in that article, just a few of them there uh, that talk about how America is going to trust Germany, how that trust will be betrayed. And then we also, if you want a bit of a deeper dive, if you go to our trends article, uh, we have one on Europe militarizing, why the trumpet watches Europe's push towards a unified military. And again, that will go through, show you some of those uh, most dramatic statements from Mr. Armstrong and then take you through and try to just succinctly explain, Okay, well, we're looking at Revelation chapter 17 that describes this power that's constantly resurrected, that's led by a church. uh, And this passage makes very clear that it makes war. It's an aggressive power. uh, It's a, a, a war making power. And that's why we're expecting it. And then. Both of these articles take you through and show you, well, where this is leading and the good news behind this this prophecy as well. Marvelous. Thank you very much for that. We'll link to those in the show notes for the program today. We appreciate that. The Ukraine war has driven up the cost of oil and fuel prices worldwide. In America, Democrats are responding to the pain at the pump with a truly extraordinary proposal. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, there is a very real possibility that the uh, these uh, high gas prices, if the Ukraine war remains protracted, could push the uh, economy into recession. I mean, there, you're still seeing uh, uh, analysts from like Goldman Sachs and other places saying that like you could be getting two hundred dollar a barrel oil this year, which would be you'd need for semi trucks and all the other things that just move stuff around the country that just rises prices up uh, across the board. And so people are struggling to afford these things, not investing in job growth and things like that and push the really push the economy down. And so, as you mentioned, uh, Democrats have really put toward two uh, really extraordinarily uh, naive proposals uh, in order to like, how are you going to help people keep the economy going? In California, <clears throat> they're actually looking at giving people $400 a month and just to give a handout in order to afford gasoline. 
And uh, and then there's three Democrats in Congress that are actually trying to take what they're looking at doing in California and making it national and basically handing out $300 a month. I think it would actually be $100 uh, for a single person and then another hundred with the option for another $100 for two more dependents. And so you're getting like $300 a month per person. It's basically taking the what they did with COVID. When they did the COVID lockdowns, people couldn't work, so they they handed out a series of three stimulus checks. Well, now you have like a stimulus check for 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 gasoline. However, this is, this is the solution to everything now, isn't it? Yeah, just give them money, which it's kind of like if you <laughs> just stop and think about it. It's like how well did that work with COVID? Like one in every five dollars in existence, right, has been printed since the outbreak of of COVID, and we have. Well, we're going to have 10% inflation this right. year because right. of it. It's, but it's that's very, Putin's fault, though. Right. That's, that's not Biden's fault. It's a simple it's a simple supply and demand uh, equation where, like, with the gas prices, you're like, okay, well, demand for gas is the same, but supply is less because of sanctions and other things. Um, and the fact that the Biden administration is not drilling. <laughs> uh, and so the price goes up. The simple solution to that is to increase american domestic oil production so then the supply goes up the price goes down since they're not willing to do that they're just giving people money or trying to give people money to afford the more expensive gas but then like i said you just put more dollars into the system uh, initially you get those first few checks it might help someone but it just create you're just diluting you're just dil- diluting the money supply and you'll uh, you'll get even worse inflation this really is uh, marvelous proof that they are more interested in breaking the back of the dollar than they are in providing genuine relief for Americans. Right. Yeah. If your if your goal is to destroy the American economy, you couldn't do it more efficiently because I mean you're looking at these now because you're you're talking about um, the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates, which is going to hurt the dollar's status as the reserve. Uh, currency because it's going to make America have to pay uh, billions and billions more dollars in interest on its national debt. And they're saying that they're like, okay, well, why are you hiking these interest rates? And I said, well, we need to do it to combat inflation. It's like, okay, well, that's true. I mean, there's tough choices if you have to hike the interest rates, even if it hurts your reserve currency status to get the inflation, then th- that's what you have to do. But then you come right along after that. It's like, oh, and, and then we want to like start giving people money for hmm. Uh, for gas, that's going to create more inflation. So you're like, okay, well, you're you're obviously not concerned about inflation because if you do both these things, we're going to get high inflation and high interest rates, and it's just going to be like the worst possible scenario all around. And so, like I said, it's just really evidence that you're looking at breaking America's economic dominance on the world scene, which is prophesied. We'll put a We'll put a chapter from our He Was Right booklet um, summarizing all the different prophecies that Herbert W. Armstrong made that have come to pass or are currently coming to pass. The chapter is titled Our Financial 9-11 Was Prophesied, uh, talking about like this prophesied fall of the U.S. economy. Because uh, it really it actually ties back to what Brent was talking about at the beginning half of the show about that inscription on Mount Ebal, where you're looking at blessings and cursings, and there's <laughs> there's two chapters in the Bible that happened uh, a little bit before that Mount Ebal uh, incident uh, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 38, where God laid out the blessings for following His uh, His laws and the cursings for not. 
Uh, and it said in one of those curses, like I said, that inscription keeps saying curse, cursed, cursed, like like 10 times. It said, but one, well, one of those curses uh, is that um, foreigners will lend to you and you won't lend to them, which just a little bit of a rhythmic. If, if you're, you're borrowing and not lending, you're in debt. And um, when you've got that type of debt problems, uh, you get in situations like America is right right now where you're struggling between well do we raise interest rates do we uh give people <laughs> give people money for gas it's like how do we how do we cope with this it's like well no there's there's only one way to cope with it if you've lived beyond your means for decades you just have to get ready to drastically reduce your your standard of living because of the um the economic sins you've been doing for uh, at least a generation and if you don't get ready to reduce your standard of living your standard of living will go down anyway right <laughs> Our financial 9-11 was prophesied. We'll link to that uh, chapter of He Was Right in the show notes. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, we're seeing a prophecy unfold rapidly in Ukraine. In the second half, we'll look at another major biblical prophecy unrelated to that. We've talked about for many, many years that is now unfolding in a couple of ways, both within Syria and other Arab states and also in Germany. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. On the Trumpet Daily, Stephen Flurry often highlights the Trumpet's motto, Tomorrow's News Today. Here's a remarkable example. A prophecy the Trumpet has highlighted for years appears to be rapidly advancing toward its fulfillment regarding the nation of Syria. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Syria is one of those countries that's been in the news for the past decade for all the wrong reasons, with a civil war raging there since 2011 at the start of the Arab Spring, and there's over half a million people that have died. And from the very outset of this war, it was difficult to know, uh, just based on how looking at it, which way it was going to go, whether Syria's president Bashar al-Assad would leave power, would be booted from power, uh, whether the uprising would be successful. And the reason that that he stayed in power was because of the uh, inclusion of two major powers, regional powers and world powers inside the war in his favor, that being first of Iran and coming to his aid, uh, and then later in 2015, Russia coming to his aid to fight against the other the other warring parties uh, that were trying to remove him. And what we've kind of based our forecast of what would happen in the end is 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 on a prophecy that says that Syria would eventually ally with powers that are uh, not, it would not be allied with Iran. Instead, it would be allied with Europe and also some moderate Arab states, some of the Gulf monarchies in Turkey and such. And so when you had Iran coming to Syria's uh, Assad's favor and his support and aid, and, and then you had Russia coming to the aid of Assad, um, it could have been seen that it was harder and harder for this prophecy to work out that Iran would actually flip, that Syria would actually flip from its alliance with Iran, who has really served uh, Syria's president quite well, spending over $30 billion, spending over $30 billion in the past decade to prop up Assad in power. We, it was hard to see how Iran would actually be extricated from Syria. 
And Iran is, has been in Syria and supported Assad for its own reasons. It needs access to Hezbollah and the Lebanese inside Lebanon. It's one of its major fighting forces. And it saw controlling Syria as critical to create this land bridge that would make its way across Iraq from Iran through Syria and to the Mediterranean Sea. Iran wanted to control this whole territory. But really, ever since, I think the past, it's been a part since 2018, when we kind of saw a stalemate take place where Assad's not going anywhere. You do have the Kurds that are kind of still fighting in the north in the northeast uh, against Assad. But most of the other uh, Sunni forces that were fighting against Assad, um, they've lost, basically. And so Assad was going to stay in power. But what was going to happen to the long-term future of Syria? Syria right now is still an absolute, de- absolutely decimated country. And in order for Syria to be built up and to be welcomed back, I guess, into the international community with Assad in power, it was going to take some some pretty interesting maneuvering by by Assad and others. And basically what we said based from 2018 onwards is it looks like Assad's going to have to make a choice. He's going to have to make a choice between the West and probably Russian support and ditching Iran, which would mean that it would be able to give get lots of money from the international community to rebuild its country, or it could stay a decimated country while it has this relationship with the pariah uh, with Iran. And so if it wanted a way out, if Assad wanted a way out in the future, it looked like Iran, uh, Assad, he would have to lead Syria away from Iran by choice. And really, this is what we're seeing take place right now. There's an article in Geopolitical Futures from this past week that is entitled Syria Mulls Pulling Out of Iran's Orbit. And this idea of pulling out of Iran's orbit or Syria would not be in Iran's orbit, that's basically a quote from Mr. Gerald Flurry back in 2011, an article he wrote, How the Syrian Crisis Will End. He says, by the end of it, Syria is going to be out of the Iranian orbit. And that is what we're seeing right now, at least in terms of the moves that Syria is making led by Assad to try and reach out to uh, the UAE in particular, it seems, one of the Gulf monarchies, uh, and favoring a relationship with them, seeing if they will be able to support Syria going forward, how much money they'd be willing to invest. And then obviously the UAE is fighting Iran on multiple fronts right now. They are going to want... uh, Assad to more forcefully cut off its ties to the Iranians. It really does illustrate the uh, the value in prophetically underpinned analysis of what's happening. And I, I actually, uh, you're talking about what we wrote in 2018 about this, that Assad would have to make a choice. Uh, I think back to when the Syrian civil war first started and we it looked like Assad was going to be gone. And we were talking about a, uh, a government transition there that would install someone in power who would lead uh, Syria away from Iran. It didn't happen that way, but the fundamentals of what informed that idea uh, have remained true because it was based on these prophecies. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, the prophecy that underpins the, uh, uh, the forecast that we made. 
There's a there's a prophecy found in Psalm 83, which details an end time alliance we talk a lot about related to the Middle East. It, it shows a, num- a confederacy of states that are going to come together. And this is an alliance that has never taken place in history. Most commentaries would discuss this. And it includes a people called the Hagarenes, which during the time that this psalm was written, these these Hagarenes were located in the western part of Syria, area of Damascus. Um, probably not all of Syrian territory, and yet, you know, where the main power base of Syria and population centers of Syria exist, these were where the ancient Hagarenes were. And this this alliance puts them, uh, the Hagarenes, along with uh, the Ishmaelites, which are basically the, the Arabian Peninsula um, Gulf states, uh, along with the Edomites, modern Edomites being the Turkish state, and then you've got another couple of mentions to others, including Jordan and Gibal, which is probably Lebanon as well. And so you've got this strip of territory that kind of divides the Middle East. If you go from Turkey down through Syria into in Lebanon, through Jordan and into the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, UAE, um, perhaps Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, these are these the Psalm 83 alliance mixed with a European superpower led by the Assyrians, as it talks about uh, in that psalm. And so that's why we expect, and we've written a trend article on this, Germany allying with Arab states. I think there's a title similar to that. It details how that alliance is going to come together. And so when we have a civil war breaking out in Syria, and prior to this civil war, Iran, Syria is fully uh, entrenched in an alliance with Iran, then we know that that's going to end somehow. And Mr. Flurry was was bold enough to say that the Syrian crisis is going to end when the civil war is all over. You're going to have a Syria flip sides. And so we, again, we thought Assad, as you noted, would be the one that would leave because Assad was so toxic. Um, and he was so in an alliance with Iran. He was toxic because he used toxic chemical weapons on his own people. And the United States at the time had said that if he uses them, Assad is gone. No way. And he can he continue? And, and that was the red line that was uh, not uh, upheld by Barack Obama. And so we've got, so Assad stayed in power and, and his longevity exists there based on the Syrian, based on the alliance with Russia. And I think the Arab states know that he's going to stay in power. He is, I mean, religiously, he's, why the Alawites, that's the religious sect he belongs to, I guess, are kind of more in line with the Shiites than the Sunnis. They really aren't belonging to the, the radical theology that the Iranians, the Shiites in Iran belong to, uh, the Ayatollah belongs to. And so he, he does not support the Iran because of that. Um, he's basically inherited a relationship with Iran from his father. Uh, and so it's it's purely relationship for convenience rather than an ideological thing. And so he is seeking a way, it seems, to extricate himself from that fanatical regime. And he's reaching out to the Gulf states to try and do that. Uh, this same week, I actually read an article about how Saudi Arabia is reaching out to the Hezbollah even to try and cut it off from Iran. And so there is a big, big push by the Gulf states to try and make the most of this moment uh, and and support uh, Assad with some power um, to bring about really this prophetic change that we've been looking looking for. How the Syrian Crisis Will End is the article from Gerald Flurry that we'll link to in the show notes that explains this prophecy. We thank you very much for that, Brent. The other part of the prophecy he mentioned is the fact that this Arab alliance will include a conspicuous non-Arab participant, Germany, 
This week, we saw evidence of that developing as well. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, Germany's economics minister, Robert Habeck, was traveling around the Middle East earlier this week. He visited Qatar on Sunday and then the United Arab Emirates the next day. Uh, Spiegel wrote that he was on a kind of shopping spree. His aim was to go around. He was convincing these different countries to sell more energy to Germany. Now, we've covered before how Germany, a lot of Europe, they're slowly moving away from buying oil and gas from Russia. It's not fast enough to affect really what's going on in in Ukraine because of these gas prices have shot up so much they're actually sending more money to Russia, not less. Nevertheless, they are still looking to move away from Russia. And especially if you get into Eastern Europe, you look at countries like Poland, there are some countries there that are genuinely very keen to move away from Russia. So if you're Europe, and you want to buy less oil and less gas from Russia, well, the Middle East is the obvious place to turn to. I mean, I guess the United States would also be if the United States were actually drilling and extracting. And under President Trump, they were exporting, uh, I think, getting ready to export liquefied natural gas and all of this kind of thing. Uh, you know, that's, not, that's, that's not happening anymore. So Europe's having to turn to the Middle East. Hence, Mr. Harbeck's visit going to Qatar and the UAE. So he got Qatar to agree to sell Germany liquefied natural gas. So this will uh, this is where you take the natural gas and you freeze it and you put it on a ship, you send it, so you unfreeze it at the other end, turn it back into uh, gas that's actually a gas rather than a liquid. It's, kind of, it's, it's an expensive process. It is more expensive than just buying gas through a pipeline. Germany hasn't built the terminal at the other end yet. So this, this contract will only be fulfilled in a few years. Uh, but it's just part of this trend now with European leaders going, getting much more involved in the Middle East and uh, having them replace some of this oil and gas they've been getting from Russia. Poland, I mentioned earlier, they've had some really significant deals uh, with the Middle East uh, even before the the uh, Ukrainian invasion and, and back in January when things were just kind of heating up, but the, the troop tanks hadn't started rolling yet where the state oil company, Saudi Aramco, is you know, they're buying a major stake in an oil refinery in Gdansk. They're selling Poland 300,000 barrels per day. They're getting a, it really invested in Poland's whole oil network. Uh, Reuters estimated that they would be provide that this would see Saudi Arabia providing Poland 50 to 70 percent of their oil needs. And at the same time, this puts them in a position to sell more oil to all of Poland's neighbors. So for Eastern Europe in particular, you're seeing a big switch away from Russia and, and to the Middle East. You've also had the Italian foreign minister making phone calls. So uh, all of this is just drawing Europe much more into the Middle East now. Uh, they've been relatively insulated from what's going on. I mean, the Middle East still makes up a significant chunk of oil and gas from Europe. Now it, it's it's going to become even even more dramatically significant because, because of this shift. And just looked at from a prophetic standpoint, the fact that Germany and European nations have a much more highly vested interest in uh, securing energy reserves, energy sources from the Middle East, uh, they obviously have strong strategic interests in this area that we have uh, described for many years, uh, and Germany in particular. Um, we were just talking with Brent about the uh, the alliance of several of these Arab states, and that Psalm 83 prophecy describes Germany being a part of it as well, 
and it's specifically uh, meant to counter the influence of Iran. Anytime we see Germany getting more involved in there, we're, we're focusing very much on that prophecy and just how uh, how strong Germany's presence is in North Africa and the Middle East in end-time prophecy. Yeah, and this ties right in that. It's an, another layer to this alliance, because if Germany's going over to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE, and saying, sell us oil, uh, the price isn't just isn't just euros. They are going. They they want more, uh, and a lot of these countries are kind of reluctant to annoy Russia. So they've actually been relatively reluctant. I mean, you've seen this with America, where they've been reluctant to pick up the phone call to Joe Biden. What did we see this week? Uh, you know, America's been trying to get Saudi Arabia to pump more oil, and then Joe Biden agrees to send more Patriot missiles to Saudi Arabia. Uh, or was it the United Arab Emirates? But but anyway, they're sending more Patriot missiles over there. Uh, you very soon start to get a military dimension to the to these oil trades. It's going to be the same with Germany. If they're going to want to get in all of Europe more resources from the Middle East, well, well, we want weapons for that. Uh, and we've you, seen Germany make incredibly significant deals with these countries before. Now those deals have come under a lot of criticism within the German public at home, just because. Uh, they don't want Germany selling these weapons to some of these unsavory regimes. But if it comes to lessening dependence on on Putin, well, I think a lot of those that criticism now is going to become much more muted. It will become much politically much easier for Germany to keep doing these same kind of military deals. But this is one of the key note prophecies that we that we come back to so often is Daniel chapter 11 that describes this this epic clash between a radical Muslim king of the south and this European king of the north plus plus their allies and you can see this clash building uh right now and you can see europe getting pulled into this area more they are going to come more into contact with radical islam with iran and you're going to see this this happen much more quickly in our free book the king of the south uh, talks about that in greater detail and we also have uh, Richard's trumpet brief from Wednesday of this week. Russia's invasion of Ukraine will heat up the Middle East. You can check that out at the website, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Thank you for that, Richard. In the Pacific Ocean, not far northeast of Australia, the Solomon Islands are contemplating forming major security agreements with China that would have significant wider implications for this. We'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yeah, Reuters broke this story and said that the Solomon Islands already signed a major policing deal with China yesterday, and uh, now they're very close to clinching a wide-ranging security agreement that would uh, let Chinese police and soldiers assist the Solomon Islands if there's social disorder or weather disasters. It also says Chinese naval ships would be able to carry out logistical replenishments there as well. So it really sounds like a big step toward a Chinese military base in Solomon Islands. And when you consider where these islands are, you know, located alongside some of Australasia's most vital shipping lanes, then you see that it's a, a very worrying development, especially for the Australians. And uh, our own Andrew Miller actually wrote an article about this back in 2019, about what the consequences of this sort of thing could be. He wrote, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, and the Solomon Islands sit astride the most vital shipping lanes in Australasia. If China is able to militarize these shipping lanes, it'll be able to isolate Australia and become master of the South Pacific. End quote. So, you know, in, in the time since that article was written, China has made more progress drawing these various nations deeper into its orbit. And with the Solomon Islands, the uh, the, devel the developments this week have really shifted into 
high gear. And as, as Andrew wrote, that could let China really become master of this region. But uh, this is prophetically significant because for a number of decades, the peoples of Britain and America had control over virtually every important seagate or oceanic choke point on the planet. You know, all kinds of places like the Suez Canal, Panama Canal, Quebec City, Hong Kong, the list goes on and on. And the list includes the Solomon Islands. It was back in the 1890s that uh, the British declared them a protectorate. And Britain and the U.S. coming to control all of these maritime choke points was actually prophesied in the Bible. Genesis twenty-two seventeen said that some of the descendants of Abraham would come to control the gates of their enemies. And other passages show that these descendants would specifically be Ephraim and Manasseh, which today are Britain and America. So that prophecy was fulfilled really spectacularly with the Solomon Islands and dozens of other strategic locations. But then there's another prophecy saying that if the U.S. and U.K. did not turn to God, control of these crucial locations would end up being handed over to their enemies. That's in Deuteronomy 28. And much of that has been fulfilled just in in, uh, the decades since World War II. The U.S. and Britain have lost almost all of these locations, including the Solomon Islands. That was in 1978 when they declared independence. And in the years since then, uh, especially just in the last decade or so, the Solomon Islands have moved more and more into the Chinese camp. So this is another gate that has not just been taken away from the UK, but is now quickly moving into the hands of one of its primary rivals, China. Well, thank you for that, Jeremiah. Uh, And we'll finish with a quick look at Joe Biden's nomination for a new Supreme Court justice. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yes, Katanji Brown Jackson has been going through Senate confirmation uh, for most of this week. Looks like a pretty good chance she she will be confirmed. Uh, She's the most uh, popular uh, judicial nominee since John Roberts amongst the amongst the population and has a looks like a bit of bipartisan support amongst even some of the more liberal Republicans as well, which is uh, shocking because by um, by many measures, she may end up being the most liberal justice on the on the court. Uh, She's got a very uh, long history supporting uh, uh, supporting abortion, defending uh, defending terrorists uh, imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay, uh, even giving people uh, convicted of child pornography, just letting them off on very light sentences. Definitely not a constitutional originalist. Probably the uh, the most memorable moment from the judicial hearings this week is the fact that even though uh, Joe Biden made a huge deal that the biggest thing he was looking for in a justice was that she was a black woman, didn't say anything about her belief in the Constitution or her uh, legal acumen. He said he wanted a black woman, and, uh, well, he he nominated a black woman, and then they asked her uh, if she could define the word woman in in a legal sense, and her response is like, no, I'm I'm not a biologist. So I guess there's just no way to know if Biden will ever get his wish to have a black woman (laughs) on the course. (laughs) It's because uh, even the the court itself uh, that, that that's a, that's a very complicated uh, scientific question that they're they're not going to be able to answer. But um, on a definitely on a more serious note, I mean, this isn't going to really shift the ideological um, 
makeup of the court because it will still be uh, five conservatives, three liberals, and whatever John Roberts is. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but it could definitely highlight the the polarization because you're you're looking at someone who's uh, replacing uh, Justice Breyer, who is liberal, but who is even more liberal. Justice Justice Breyer had some opinions on what a woman was, uh, so you're definitely yeah. getting someone even more liberal than that with with some big court cases coming up. Uh, towards the end of this year on um oh even the constitutionality of of roe versus wade uh something that i mean people have threatened to riot over if that's Mm. (laughs) if that's ever overturned you you definitely have a another justice who's uh uh, even more pro-abortion than uh than the one she's replacing Mm. i suppose uh there are a lot of people who uh are a lot of the Congress uh, senators that are uh, saying, well, we, we might as well go ahead and just allow this to go through because what's the point of fighting this? The next one is going to be whoever he replaces her with isn't going to be more conservative. But it does really show you just how how radical the thinking of this administration is. Uh, we thank you very much for that, Andrew. You can check out Andrew's article on this. Joe Biden nominates abortion extremist to Supreme Court. That's on the website right now, as well as all of the uh, articles and booklets that we spoke about on the program today. We'll link to those in the show notes. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. And thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Epictetus. When you are offended at any man's fault, turn to yourself and study your own failings. Then you will forget your anger. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.